While they're going out, it would be helpful if you turn to that psalm that we've kept referring to, Psalm 67. So not Psalm 1 that we were learning a minute ago, but Psalm 67. There's page numbers on the yellow sheet and some notes to show you uh, where we're going with this this morning. Psalm 67, we're going to be mainly in just verses 1 and 2 of that psalm. But first of all, a question. Are you a deist? In case you didn't catch that word, are you a deist? Now, children, don't worry and switch off because I've just used a word you probably don't know. Probably most adults don't know it either. So I am going to explain, and children, I hope this morning is going to be simple enough for you to keep listening and to understand. Deists were people a couple of hundred years ago who believed, well, there is a God who made the world. Of course there is. You know, this this world couldn't have come about by chance. Of course there's a God who made this world, but he doesn't get involved now. That was the essence of deism. Of course there's a God somewhere behind this world, but he doesn't get involved now. It's a bit like winding up a clock. Have you got an old-fashioned wind-up clock? And you wind it up, put it on the shelf, and then do you come back to it every minute to move the hand on? No, because you've wound it up and it does its own thing. And deists thought the world was like that. God has wound it up, got it started, but now he just leaves it alone. There's a lot of deism around today. There are a lot of people who would not be a Richard Dawkins type atheist. No, they believe there must be some sort of God, some sort of power behind everything. But it, or he, or she, so they believe, isn't involved in this world, isn't relevant to daily life. If there is a God so distant, we just get on with our life, and it's all natural causes. There are even evangelical deists, gospel-believing deists, What do I mean? Well, they believe God sent his son and he died and he rose and now the Christian life is all a matter of do we believe and understand what happened then and go and implement the principles? Christian living is all a matter of how well are we understanding and applying what God did back then? Well, it's true, that is a very large part of Christian living. That is very important for Christian living, but it is not all of Christian living, thank God. Because we need God now. And we need God to be active and involved in our lives now. We need God's intervention in our life, in our church, and in our world. Now. And so my aim this morning is to stop us being deists in practice because I think in practice we often are. My aim is to stop us being deists in practice. Now, those who come here regularly might be wondering, how does this fit in? We were, before Christmas, if you can remember before Christmas, going through Mark's Gospel. What are we doing now? The plan is to go back to Mark's Gospel in February, but for the rest of January, to do what we did a year ago. Can we have a thing on the screen? Which is our vision for the church. Just three Sundays on it, just three Sunday mornings, our vision for the church, that we need to be a church that is looking up to God, that is reaching out with the gospel, and that is coming closer in fellowship. 
The plan at the moment is just one Sunday morning on each of these. And this morning is about looking up, focused on God, all for his glory, all reliant on him. And we're doing this from Psalm 67. Psalm 67, we're going to spend most of our time firstly on a principle. And then we'll briefly look at a practice and then some persuasion to actually do it. So first of all, a principle. It's a very simple one. It's this. We need verse 1 for verse 2 to happen. And verse 2 happening is the reason for verse 1. Children, were you listening and did you get that one? It's quite simple. We need verse 1 if verse 2 is going to happen. And verse 2 happening is the reason for verse 1. Or to put it in full, we need God to be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us if his salvation is going to be made known to the nations. And God's salvation being made known to the nations is the very reason for him blessing his church. It's not so the blessing stays here and we feel better. So we've got a principle that works two ways. Let's take, first of all, and most of the time, the first way. We need verse 1 for verse 2 to happen. This psalm is a prayer. You may notice from the title that it is a song as well. It was a song prayer. We can sing our prayers. We often do. And it starts with this prayer, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. In other words, it's saying, God, this is what we need. We need you. We need you to be towards us, to be gracious to us, to bless us. And then it says, why? Why do we need that? Verse 2, we need that, God, so that your ways may be known on earth. We need that so that your salvation may be known Among all nations, we need you to be gracious to us for this verse 2 purpose. Well, of course. Of course. When you think about when that psalm was written, God's people were just this tiny little nation. Why would, look at the words in verse 2, the earth and all nations take notice of that tiny little nation and its claim that its God was the only God and they should all praise him. Why ever would they take notice of that? For that, there would need to be some evidence God was with them. His face was shining on them. They would need to have some power from God for all the nations to take notice of them and their claim their God's the one, real one. But when you get to the New Testament, it's even more obvious that if verse 2 is going to happen, verse 1 is needed. It's even more obvious in the New Testament. Children, can you try to imagine those first disciples? Maybe you've seen some pictures of a little group of fishermen and maybe more slightly smarter dressed tax collector. And there's some women with them as well. But they're just a little group and they go out to the towns and the villages around them and they try to persuade people Jesus has risen from the dead and he's the son of God and he's the way and the truth and the life and you can't come to God the Father except through him. What a massive thing to persuade people of. However would that little group of fishermen and tax collectors and women manage to do it? And on top of that, the Bible says 
they are telling that message to people who are spiritually dead. To people who have hearts that are like stone, like rock, hard-hearted. To people who are enemies of God, who are sin addicts and can't break the addiction themselves. They, we, need power from God. Need God to be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us. Otherwise, it's just a hopeless task. So, it's no surprise to find this principle at work in the New Testament churches. That's why I asked for Revelation 3 to be read to us. You might have wondered, how's it connected? Well, That section of Revelation is a set of seven letters to seven churches. Very helpful to us. One example that wasn't read to us was a church in a town called Philadelphia. And it was a weak, little church. And it was under pressure. And Jesus says to them, I am going to open a door for you that no one else can close. In other words, he says to them, because I have decided to bless you, However weak you are, however despised you are, the gospel is going to go out and be successful through you. Because I've decided it. The letter that was read to us was to a church in a town called Laodicea, and they were quite the opposite. They were rich, they were big, they were self-satisfied, they were sophisticated. But Jesus says to them, I'm actually outside the church. I'm actually not with you. And because of that, however much money and learning and reputation you've got, you're in reality weak and ineffective. You see, it didn't all depend on the status and the apparent strength of the church. It depended on, was God blessing them? Was Jesus with them? The principle is, let me remind you, I hope it's very simple and straightforward, the principle is we need, verse 1, God to be gracious to us and bless us, so that, verse 2, his ways may be known around the world, his salvation may come to the people around us. It is a simple, undeniable principle. But do we believe it? Do we believe it? I'll give you an example. Let's have have something up on the screen next thing. Here's here's a good book. I've got two copies, actually. If anyone wants to borrow one, then uh, speak to me afterwards. It's a good book. It's about times when God has worked in extraordinary power uh, down through the history of the church. And I'll give you... It's got lots of stories of these. I'll give you just one example. Riley was a fishing village in East Yorkshire. Maybe it's still there, I don't know. Riley, in East Yorkshire. There had been attempts to start a church there. But the locals just weren't interested. And the town had a really bad reputation for wicked living. And the church struggled and tried and got nowhere until in 1823, so this is a long time ago, 1823, they considered closing down. Now, what would be our first reaction? There's a church and it's just not getting anywhere. Not getting any success. Maybe going to have to close down. What would be our first reaction? Would it be, could we send some more people to them? Would it be, maybe they're rather stuck in their ways. Do they need to try something different? 
Would it be, well, let's have a look at one of the successful churches and see what is the successful church doing that maybe they could copy in Riley? That's the sort of reaction I usually hear. And none of those reactions are wrong. But they are a very bad first reaction. None of those are wrong things to do, but they are a wrong first reaction. Back in 1823, there was a man called John Oxtoby. He was a minister of a Methodist church nearby to Riley. And he heard about this situation and his first reaction was, we need God to intervene. His first reaction was, they need verse 1 of Psalm 67, God to be gracious to them and bless them. But that didn't mean doing nothing. No, off he went to Riley. But before he got there, when he got up on the hill that's overlooking Riley, he got down and prayed. He got down next to the roadside and prayed for the village of Riley. In fact, a passing traveller thought there were two people having an argument in a ditch. But it wasn't two people having an argument in a ditch. It was John Oxterby arguing with God. Arguing with God to, to bless and work in power in the village of Riley until he was persuaded that God had answered him. By the way, there's many people in church history who've thought there's such a thing as, in your prayers, coming to a point where you're persuaded God has already given you what you've asked. And so off he went to Riley, not to have fish and chips and do nothing because God had answered, but to preach the gospel. And one lady was converted. But then through her, 50 more were converted. And then 50 years later, the church in Riley had 600 people in it. Now, my point is not, it will always turn out as well as that. That is not my point. My point is, is our first reaction what we could do, or is our first reaction what we need God to do? That's what Psalm 67 is about. Is your first reaction what we could do? We can sort it out. Or we despair because we can't sort it out. Or is your first reaction what we need God to do? Now, let's more briefly think about the principle from the other direction. We've just had, we need verse 1 for verse 2 to happen. But notice this, verse 2 happening is the reason for verse 1. The reason for verse 1 isn't just to make us feel better or to get this building full or to get us a good lot of money for our building project. No, the reason for verse 1 happening is verse 2. So the nations here. We as a church need to be looking up in these two senses. First sense, verse 1, God, we need you. Second sense, verse 2, God, it's all for your glory. It's all to make you known. Do you see this across the psalm? Verse 2, so your ways may be known. So your salvation may be known. Verse 3, may the peoples praise you. Verse 5, may all the peoples praise you. God, it's all about your glory. And where is it all heading? How does the psalm end? How does the psalm end? Where is it all heading to? Verse 7, and all the ends of the earth will fear God. That's the aim. It's all God-focused. 
It's all coming from a person who knows God. It's all coming from a heart that's insistent, God must be glorified. Is that you? Is that your attitude? By the way, God being praised and it all being for his glory is good for the world, it's great for humans. Did you spot the centre of the psalm? The very centre of the psalm is verse 4. Verse 4, may the nations be glad and sing for joy. Yeah, God being glorified is actually joyful and good for the nations. It's great. Now, that leads to a lesson I want to give. If, if you're not a Christian, anyone here today, and you're not trusting Jesus, so far I have been speaking to Hollywell as a church, because this psalm is a prayer for the church. But it does give a pattern for you and me as individuals. So if you're not a Christian, take notice of this pattern. The pattern is this, you need verse 1. You need God not to be against you because of your sin, but to be towards you, for you, gracious to you. That means have undeserved favour for you. So pray verse 1 for yourself. Because you need verse 2. You need verse 2. You need his salvation to come to you. You need him to save you from your sin. Because you were made for verse 3. This is what God created you for, verse 3, to praise him. And because that's what God created you for, then it will give you, verse 4, gladness and singing for joy. Isn't that good news? Isn't that a good pattern? It all begins with God being gracious. It's his work, but it leads you to joy and gladness. But it's all for his glory. What a great combination. So will you see your need of verse 1 and pray it for yourself? Okay, we've had the principle. I hope that principle is clearly established. Let's next have practice. Practice. What does Psalm 67 tell us to do? Did you notice as it was read? Or can you have a little scan over it now and spot what does it tell us to do? Can you spot any commands? What does it tell us to do? The answer is nothing, explicitly, because there's no commands in it. No, nothing. But it does tell us to do something implicitly, because it's a prayer, and it's a model prayer, and we are to pray it. And we, Hollywell Church, should be telling God, we need you and we know we need you. Verse 1. And we, as a church, should be telling God, verse 2, we care about your salvation coming to all people. We care about you being praised across the world. That matters to us. And we, as a church, should be getting together and telling God those two things. But are we? Are we? Why do I question whether we are? Well, let me give you an example, an illustration the Bus Drivers' Union. By the way, I've made up this illustration. I don't even know if there is a Bus Drivers' Union. But anyway, everyone's on strike these days, so I've got an illustration about striking. The Bus Drivers' Union's leaders say, we as a union believe we should have a 10% pay increase. That's what we think is right. We should have a 10% pay increase. And we as a union believe striking is the way 
to get it. We as a union believe in striking. So, we as a union are striking on the 16th of January. Now, we also, I've just described to you my made-up union, the bus driver's union. 16th of January comes tomorrow, and 85% of bus driver's union members just don't turn up and strike. They're not there on the picket line. They're driving their bus. They're doing something else. 85% of them don't turn up for the strike. Now, some of that 85% may be explained by illness, family commitments, other things getting in the way. Yes, there's, there's some. Maybe there's quite a lot. But that's, it's only some. And you'd still say, whatever the leaders say, and even if the members say, yes, we agree with our leaders, we want 10%, striking's the way to get it, we as a union should strike. Even if they say that, if 85% don't turn out for the strike, come on, you don't really believe it and you're not really backing it. Now, are you guessing where this is going? I think some of you are guessing the parallel. Let me give you the parallel. The leaders of Hollywell Church say, we must aim for verse 2. We must be concerned not just for our little patch and our little lives, but God's worldwide work. So we need to be doing verse 1. We need to be together as a church, praying for God to work and for his grace. And so we meet as a church on Thursday evenings and do that. And what happens? Thursday evening comes and 30 people regularly come. 30 people meet to do that. That means 85% of the 200 or so here now don't. Do the maths. I think I've got that right. If 30 people come out of 200, that's 85% don't. Why? Why? Now, there are actually quite a lot of possible reasons. Quite a lot of possible reasons. Some are looking after children. Some have other family commitments. Some have health troubles that make it hard to come out in the evening, in the dark, especially in the winter. Some have working hours that get in the way. Some are students who are rightly committed to their Christian union and shouldn't be at Christian meetings all the time, got to do some work and mix with some unbelievers. Some of the 200 here are not Christians and we're really glad you're here. And we're certainly not putting you under pressure to come to the prayer meeting. Some of the 200 here are Christians and maybe you're, maybe you're deciding whether this is just a meeting you attend or a church that you're committing to be part of and get really stuck into. And we'd encourage you to get on and make that decision. But still it doesn't explain away all the 85%. So this is an appeal to us as Hollywell Church. For those who are part of Hollywell Church, we need to take joint responsibility and consider how do we avoid being like the bus driver's union, if you get the parallel. How do we avoid being like the bus driver's union? How do we avoid saying to God, either we don't need your face to shine upon us, we can manage, thank you, or we don't really care about salvation coming to the nations, we'll just pray for things that concern us. Is there a change we should be making to how we pray together as a church? If so, please tell the elders. 
You see, you might be thinking, I really think we should do this. I really think we should pray together as a church, seek God's face. But the way we do it and the timings and the method, just, come on, you're not getting it right. Well, if so, please tell us. Because we'd rather hear we're wrong and put it right than just carry on being like the bus driver's union. But also ask this, is there a change you should be making to your priorities? So that we as a church put Psalm 67 into practice. We've had principles, a principle, we've had practice. Let's finish more positively on persuasion. Persuasion. What is the best way that verse 1 could be answered? What is the best possible answer to verse 1's prayer? Well, the best possible answer has already happened. Verse 1 has already been answered. Let's think about it by taking the three phrases of the verse. First of all, there's a prayer, may God be gracious to us. What does gracious mean? It means act with undeserved favour. What could be more gracious than God sending his son What could be a more undeserved favour than sending his son? And when he came, the Apostle John saw him and he watched his life and he said, I saw him, the one full of grace and truth. Especially as I saw him die on the cross. What an act of undeserved favour to us. Verse 1, it's a prayer for God to bless us. What does bless mean? We've probably most got a vague idea, but only a vague idea maybe. Bless means give a gift that shows favour. Give a gift that is for our good. What, what gift could God give that is more for our good than his son? Giving his son, who as he died on the cross, secured every good we need. And you know, thousands of years before God did that, he made a promise to a man called Abraham. And he said to that man, Abraham, from you is going to come a child, a descendant one day, who will bless all the peoples of the earth. Same language as Psalm 67. And that person who brings blessing is Jesus. What's the third prayer in verse 1? May God make his face shine upon us. What does that mean, make his face shine? Can you make your face shine? Can I'd like to see it after this. Sounds quite interesting. What does it mean, make his face shine upon us? Well, it means, it means turn toward us and make himself known to us. And, well, actually, some people's faces do shine, don't they? I'm not very good at this. I'm not a very smiley person. Sorry I scowl at you most of the time. But some people, their faces shine, don't they? They're smiley and you can see they're for you. They're for you. And that's what it means. God to make himself known and make it known that he is for us. And how did God do that? 2 Corinthians 4 says, God has given us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. He's made himself known in the face of Jesus Christ. And Romans 8 says, we know God is for us because he gave his son and he didn't hold him back. And so his face shines on us. We know he's for us. Do you see, there is no better way 
The prayer of verse 1 could be answered then, Jesus himself, the Son of God. Verse 1 has happened. And so verse 2 is happening. Verse 2 is happening. God's ways are being made known on earth. Think, think of this. Now, all, all of this next, like I've said before, but I think it's so well worth keeping on reminding ourselves. Whoever wrote this psalm, and we don't know who it was, but whoever it was, lived in ancient Israel. That was a country the size of Wales. One day, get a globe or a world, a world map and look for Wales. It's pretty tiny, isn't it? Compared with the whole world. He lived in a country that size. And it was surrounded by superpowers. Babylon and Assyria and Egypt. Think how they would laugh at his prayer. Your God praised by the whole world. What a silly idea. In how many countries today have people met to praise the gods of Babylon and Assyria? In how many countries today has there been a meeting of people eager to worship the Sphinx? I'm pretty sure the answer is none. Zero. In how many countries today have people met together already, and will do again later, to worship the God of this psalmist, the God of tiny Israel, the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ? Do you know the answer? Every country. Isn't that amazing? Every country. Doesn't it make you say, praise God from whom all blessings flow? Praise him, all creatures here below. Every country think of that. Or, here's another way of showing the same thing. Let, let's have a, our last picture. Here's an example I've used before. Do you see that's the world at night time? They must have done something funny because the world isn't all at night time at once, is it? But I find pictures like this really interesting. Look where all the light pollution is and where all the people are and... I'm a bit surprised at that blob in the middle of Russia, aren't you? I didn't think there were lots of people there. Anyway, I find those pictures are really interesting. Imagine a spiritual version. Imagine you could have a spiritual version of that that showed spiritual light. Shows where there are people who know the true God and are praising him. That would be a fascinating picture. What would that picture look like when Psalm 67 was written. A spiritual version of that back in 1000 BC or whenever that psalm was written. What would it look like? Complete darkness except a tiny speck there in the Middle East. Israel, the size of Wales. Can you imagine that? All darkness except for that one speck of light. What would that picture look like now? What would a spiritual version of that look like now? It would be speckled with light across every country. There would be light across North America and South America and Europe and Africa and Asia and down into Australia and across those Pacific islands. Speckled with light. It would be a spotty world. Psalm 67 has been answered amazingly. That picture, a spiritual version of that, would tell us there is still so much need. Because what we would see is a dark world speckled with light. Not a light world speckled with dark. You see the difference? 
And so it would tell us there is still so much need. We need to keep praying Psalm 67. Jesus having come doesn't mean stop praying it, we need to keep praying. It's still a work in progress. It is still a work needing God active now. But the picture would also tell us, be confident. Look, we are not on the losing side. Whatever people might say, we are not on the wrong side of history. We have got good, historically evidenced and backed reason to expect great things from God. And so that picture would say to us, confidently pray. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us so your ways may be known on earth and your salvation among all nations. Let's pray that now. Father, please be gracious to your church. Please bless your church. Please make your face shine on your church. Show you are with us. Father, may we know you, know you better, see more of the knowledge of the glory of God, the light in the face of Jesus Christ. But not just so we feel better, not so that we feel like a more successful church, not for the blessing to stay here with us, but so your salvation is known, known by our families, known by our neighbours, known by our friends, known by our work colleagues, known by our town and region, known by our poor sinful nation, known by the unreached people groups of this world. So Jesus is honoured and rejoiced in amongst every ethnic group, every tribe, every community in this, your world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.